Welcome to another episode of Salty Talks. I am your host, Corinne Newfie, the Communications Specialist at the Aquaculture Research Institute, here to bring you another interesting conversation today, one that delves into a crucial topic surrounding our marine environment and the communities that rely on them. In this episode, we're taking a closer look at a pressing environmental issue, ocean acidification. This global phenomenon is having notable impacts right here in the Gulf of Maine, affecting our marine ecosystems. And to help us navigate this complex topic, we have the expertise of Susie Arnold from the Island Institute. Susie is a brilliant voice in this space, working towards understanding and mitigating the impacts of ocean acidification and fostering sustainability in coastal and island communities. Throughout this episode, we'll unpack details of ocean acidification, examining its global ramifications and its specific repercussions in the Gulf of Maine as well. But it's not all concerning news. We'll also be taking a look at potential solutions, particularly focusing on the role of kelp farming as a sustainable alternative to bring about positive changes to our marine environment. So my name is Susie Arnold. I'm the senior ocean scientist and the director for the Center for Climate and Community at the Island Institute. Uh, the Island Institute is a nonprofit community development organization based in Rockland, Maine. Uh, I've been here for 11 years. Uh, this was my first job out of grad school. I went to the University of Maine and um, got a dual master's degree in marine policy and marine biology and then stayed on and got a PhD in marine biology. My PhD was all about coral reefs and how baby corals get started on reefs and the importance of certain species of fish to make that happen. So this was a bit of a shift um, from a tropical ecosystem to something that is closer to, to where I grew up. But it was a great fit for me because of the, the link between healthy fisheries and healthy communities. That was something that I really learned through grad school um, very much in, in the tropics. Coastal communities that live adjacent to coral reefs are very much dependent upon healthy coral reefs for their source of protein. So I liked, I liked that link between healthy communities and healthy ocean ecosystems. And I've been really able to focus on that throughout my career here at the Island Institute. It's always nice to meet someone who echoes the beliefs that have guided my own career path. Susie's words resonate with me, taking me back to the times when I was doing fisheries research in Cambodia. There, amidst day-to-day -day life of local communities, it was evident how their well-being was so intricately tied to the waters that surrounded them, which Susie eloquently stated that healthy communities are tied to healthy fisheries. When the marine life thrives, it creates an almost ripple effect, positively impacting everything from the local economy to the nutrition and livelihoods of the individuals in the community. It was great to hear Susie channel her experience and expertise into nurturing this link right here in Maine. And it's a reminder of the universal truth, be it in the vibrant waters of Cambodia, the coral reefs where she was doing her graduate studies, or the Maine coast. Understanding our reciprocal relationship with the ocean is so important. Before diving into the bulk of the episode, I did want Susie to answer, what exactly is the Island Institute? So the Island Institute is a community development organization. We've been here in Rockland for 40 years. We focus primarily on Maine's 15 year-round unbridged island communities, but also work with all of the coastal communities in Maine. So our mission is to sustain these island and remote coastal communities. So ensuring that they have access to the services that they need to maintain year-round communities. 
And because some of these coastal and island communities have such a high dependence on fisheries, that's why a scientist who specializes in marine science works at the organization. And by unbridged island communities, do you mean like Final Haven or North Haven? And exactly. Like where you have to take a ferry to get to. And yes, not. exactly. There's tons of islands that are connected to the mainland by bridges here in Maine. Um, those that are, yeah, Georgetown, um, you know, uh, yeah, like uh, even Arousic. Well, I guess Arousic's not. No, Arousic is you do have to go over a bridge to get to Arousic and then another bridge yeah. to get into Georgetown. Um, so, yeah, there's there's lots of bridged island communities, but those that are accessible only by boat are vulnerable to a lot of things that um, islands that you could drive to are, are less vulnerable to. As Susie elucidated, these communities accessible only by boat are particularly susceptible to an array of challenges. As we continued our conversation, the term ocean acidification started reverberating in the dialogue. This phenomenon, often murmured in environmental circles, holds a complex narrative of its own. We toss this term around so often that it's almost ingrained in our natural vocabulary. But what exactly does ocean acidification mean and what are its implications? Yep, so it's well known that humans are um, emitting a lot of carbon dioxide emissions. And the more we emit, the more actually gets absorbed by the ocean. So the ocean plays a really important role in absorbing excess carbon dioxide. It's prevented the, the earth from warming even more than it already has. So the problem with that is that we've emitted so much carbon dioxide that the ocean's actually absorbing about a quarter to a third of all of those emissions to a point where it's actually changing the chemistry of the ocean. So if you think about atmospheric carbon dioxide being absorbed in ocean seawater, that chemical equation is actually forming an acid called carbonic acid. That acid then dissociates into two ions, and one of them is hydrogen ion, and that's what causes changes in pH. This might ring a bell from high, high school chemistry, <laughs> but the point being is when carbon dioxide is absorbed by the ocean, it forms an acid, it causes excess hydrogen ions to bind with something called um, carbonate ions, and carbonate ions are necessary in the process of shell building for species that have shells or skeletons. And when it binds to that ion, it forms something else called bicarbonate, and that makes these carbonate ions less available to those things that need it for shell building. So essentially, um, we've got this, this decrease in, um, in pH, which, which is an increase in acidity, and then we have fewer of the building blocks for shell building available for those shell builders that, that need them. And so that's, that's the problem. Um, a lot of uh, that absorption of excess carbon dioxide has happened since the Industrial Revolution. So if you look at global ocean chemistry, um, you might say, oh, the, the pH has only declined from 8.2 units to 8.1 units since, let's say, 1800. Well, that's a 30% increase in acidity because that's the way the pH scale works. Um, and a lot of that, like I said, has happened in the last 70 years. So this rate of acidification 
is increasing because we are continuing to emit a lot of carbon dioxide and a lot of that carbon dioxide is then absorbed by the ocean. So you've got shell builders that have uh, aragonite making up their shells like bivalves, like oysters, mussels, clams. Then you have other species that produce skeletons made of something called calcite. It actually has been found that, that those bivalves that have the aragonite shells are more susceptible to dissolution than those like crustaceans like a lobster or a crab, for instance. Um, and so because Maine has such a heavy dependence on shell, shell building species, like if you look at the commercial um, landings by value in 2022, 75% of all of that value comes from species that produce shells. Most of that's lobster, but there's also, like you said, like the oysters and the mussels and the clams and the scallops. Susie's delineation of the process, how carbon dioxide forms from carbonic acid in the seawater, altering the pH and disturbing the building blocks vital for shell formation, is not just a narrative of changing chemistry, but of changing Maine's marine ecosystem. This process is no longer a diagram confined to the pages of a scientific journal, or as Susie said, my high school textbook, but a looming reality with consequences that could span generations and geographies. So what is the broader implication here for our shell builders? How do these chemical changes translate to the life of a mussel, for instance? Yeah, so it kind of depends on the species, but it, it can be more energy has to be put into that shell building process so there's less energy available for things like reproduction or maybe that shell ends up being thinner and then it's more susceptible to breaking. Um, mussels hang on through these things called bissel threads that's how they hang on to the to the rocky intertidal or to the line that they're growing on and research has shown that those bissel threads are vulnerable to increased acidity so they, they might not be able to hang on as well. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different ways that acidification can impact shell builders, and we certainly don't know the extent of it. There has to be some hope, though. Susie, in collaboration with Nicole Price at Bigelow Labs, must think so, as they look into the potential that lay within the waters of the Gulf of Maine, a potential stemming from the versatile nature of kelp. I absorbed Susie's words, hearing a description of the symbiotic alliance between kelp cultivation and shellfish farming, mussels in particular potentially carving a new pathway in the face of looming challenges. So how does kelp manage to create a remediation halo that seems to be fostering a healthier environment for our mussels and potentially other shell builders? Yep, um, so Nicole Price, who's a senior research scientist at Bigelow, um, we knew each other back in grad school. We both worked on coral reefs and then uh, she got a job at Bigelow. And so we kind of reconnected and we're talking about our research interests. And it turned out that at the time I was working with a lot of fishermen who were interested in diversifying their businesses to include shellfish or seaweed aquaculture. And one thing that they were bringing up to me, they were saying, Susie, you know, on the one hand you're telling us diversifying into a, a shellfish uh, aquaculture business would be a good a good idea potentially going forward given the vulnerability of, of lobsters to, to warming waters. But on the other hand, you're also telling us the Gulf of Maine is so vulnerable to acidification and these these bivalves are really vulnerable, even potentially more so than, than lobsters. So why would I invest in a business that's going to be susceptible to a, an acidifying Gulf of Maine? 
And I thought, you know, I don't think we really have the answer to be able to tell people going out 20, 50 years, yeah, you're, you're going to see a problem with the shells of your bivalves if you start this business. Or maybe you're not going to see impacts for another 100 years. We just don't have a great sense of how the Gulf of Maine is going to, to respond to um, increased acidification. We know that warming is actually somehow dampening the impact of acidification. So there's a lot of complexities there. And 10 years ago, we really had no idea how acidification was going to impact fisheries in the Gulf of Maine and at what time scale. So it was really difficult for someone to be able to plan, make a business decision, basically. So I was explaining this kind of conundrum to Nicole. She was explaining her interest in, uh, in seaweeds, which we had shared uh, from, from grad school. And we both had um, an interest in investigating whether kelp aquaculture, which was also a growing industry in Maine, through its rapid growth of the kelp and its ability to photosynthesize could actually remediate ocean acidification on a local scale. And then could that improved water chemistry actually be felt by shellfish that are growing in that remediation halo? So I'm going to explain this a little bit further because that's like yeah. that's kind of hard hard to envision. So so basically if you think of if you think of a land plant like a tree, you know it photosynthesizes and through that process it takes excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and improves air quality. So we know trees are good for air quality. Well seaweeds like kelp, especially kelp because it grows so fast over a short period of time, it photosynthesizes and takes excess carbon dioxide out of its ambient environment, which is the seawater. And so we wanted to know well, if you have a kelp farm with lots of kelp growing really quickly that's photosynthesizing over a short period of time, can it take up enough excess carbon dioxide where we can actually measure a benefit to water quality and chemistry? And so we decided to work with uh, Ocean Approved at the time, which is now Atlantic Sea Farms, at their kelp farm off of Shabig Island in Casco Bay, and put instruments that measure parameters of ocean acidification smack dab in the middle of the kelp farm, and then at what we called our Wicked Fa site. <laughs> and what that, that meant very scientifically was we thought we'd put it far enough away from the border of the farm <laughs> that there would be no way that the benefit from photosynthesis could be felt way out there. And so we, that, that was basically how it went in the first three years. We had an inside site and an outside location. And we were actually able to demonstrate over all three years that we could we could see a difference in water chemistry inside the farm versus outside of the farm using these scientific instruments that measure things like carbon dioxide and pH and temperature and salinity and dissolved oxygen. So that was really encouraging. We're like, oh, this, this concept actually works. There is a benefit to water chemistry from a kelp farm. That's great in and of itself. We know that kelp farming cannot save the planet from ocean acidification. It can just act at a very, very local scale. So it's not a fix to global ocean acidification, but could it be a fix for a local shellfish farmer who wanted to improve the water chemistry around their shellfish farm? So the next step was to outplant mussels, which we did using Bangs Island mussels at um, varying distances from the farm. So we put them 
basically in cages, and we put those cages, hung them at the um, at the depth, so seven feet below the surface where the kelp was growing, hung them in the middle of the kelp farm and then at varying distances from the kelp farm to see if we could detect different um, rates of growth and other characteristics of, of health for the mussels. And we found that those that were grown in the middle of the kelp farm had thicker shells as compared to those outside of the kelp farm. So that was also a really promising result, which gets back to the question that was posed to me by the lobstermen who were interested in diversifying into shellfish is, yeah, there could be a, a very local adaptation strategy for a shellfish farmer who's interested in improving the water chemistry around their shellfish farm in the face of ocean acidification. So now we have those instruments at Bangs Island Mussels site off of Clabbert Island in Casco Bay. And Bangs Island Mussels is now one of the leading producers of kelp in the state of Maine. So they're growing kelp around their mussels, both for the benefits of acidification remediation for their mussels, but also as an added paycheck for their staff uh, come the time of kelp harvest in the spring. So it's kind of a win-win for them. Their mussels get the benefit of the, of the improved water chemistry, and then they get an added um, species to their kind of business portfolio. So how big exactly is this halo effect? That's a great question. And that's something that is so dependent upon tides and currents and flow. We weren't really able to nail it down. What we, so we measured using shipborne instruments, so basically instruments that were towed beneath um, a small vessel that were taking um, measurements of parameters that determine ocean acidification in real time. So we just drove really slowly. The first year we kind of did transects out from the farm um, and the second two years we did concentric circles around the farm mm -hmm. to see if we could map this um, to see if we could map the remediation halo and that proved to be really difficult um, because as the, the tide moved even during the day when we were measuring um, you could see it wasn't as straightforward as you might you might think. So I guess the answer is it, it's highly dependent upon the site. Mm -hmm. So every site is going to be different. You know, we were talking about um, that work that happened out in Washington State in the Puget Sound. Um, a similar study was done out there in a location with very very strong currents. And I think this this concept may not work in a location like that because the water currents are just so strong that they would essentially wipe away the remediation halo um, so quickly that you know that it wouldn't be like um, growing shellfish in like a bathtub of less acidic water it would just immediately be dispersed by the current as i absorb susie's words my mind drifts to the estuaries and expanses of oceanography i'm more familiar with back on the west coast specifically the dynamic waters of puget sound I find myself pondering the unique characteristics of places like the Hood Canal, where efforts have been undertaken to cultivate kelp. The waters there are different, marked by distinctive currents and tidal patterns. I can't help but wonder if the strategies that Susie is discussing with me would find the same foothold in starkly different marine dynamics, such as Puget Sound or elsewhere, harboring the potential to benefit from kelp as a remediation strategy. That's our goal with, um, with having our instruments at Bangs Island now is to try to help determine um, 
basically where they put the kelp around the mussels to get the best remediation benefit from from the kelp for those mussels. So exactly that understanding how the water moves at that location and where where to where to put those kelp lines. I suspect in an area of really high flow where you always have the current uh, moving really rapidly that even if you had a ton of kelp um, upstream from the mussels for the majority of time, I think that that halo would be so short-lived and ephemeral that you wouldn't be able to see a benefit. Yeah. Um, so I think it does require kind of enclosed bays where this would actually work. And obviously the more kelp you have, the better. Um, but I think just determining that, that ratio and the site setup is exactly what we're trying to do now. Given all the dynamic variables we've been talking about, I started to think, how could farmers adjust their strategies? Does the species of kelp matter? What about the proximity of mussels to the kelp or the seed density? Yeah, yep. Um, I think kelp farmers have been experimenting with uh, with just that. How how close you can put your lines? Is it 10 feet? Does it have to be more? Can you, can you seed them more densely? What are the pros and cons to doing that? How much nitrogen is available throughout the whole season? to allow for, for sustained growth. When do you have your phytoplankton spring bloom occur that then takes up some of that nitrogen and makes it less available for, for the kelp growth? So there are a ton of factors to consider to kind of um, maximize your kelp harvest and also the phytoremediation benefit of the kelp. I'd say for now, I think farmers are very much focused on maximizing their, their kelp harvest over any phytoremediation benefit it might provide for their mussels, but we only have currently, I think, um, well now two mussel farmers who are also growing kelp. Okay, so there's, I was gonna ask that. yeah, there's tons more research to be done to, to try to nail down, um, you know, how much kelp is needed, what are, what are the exact benefits that are, that are um, being provided to the mussels. Also, there's a possibility that um, the, the biomass that sloughs sloughs off of the kelp might then also be an additional food source for the mussels. So there could be hmm. more than just the, the chemistry benefits for co-locating those two species. Nicole Price had done an early lab study comparing, a f I think, four species of seaweed's ability to take up carbon dioxide. And the kelp species she used in that exper experiment was sugar kelp, and it was found to be um, far superior at taking up carbon dioxide through photosynthesis than the other three species. Um, as you know, there's sugar kelp and skinny kelp that are being grown um, here in Maine. I think they both provide a similar benefit, but we have not tested that because it really depends on what what the farmer's growing. Um, and I don't even know, the uh, I couldn't tell you right now, the ratio of skinny to sugar that um, that was at the farm that we were testing. In the early years, it was 100% sugar kelp. Right now, I'd have to look back at the, the different years of whether there was a mix of, of those two or if it was all sugar kelp. My mind drifts to the broader panorama of Maine's aquaculture. Could this work for other marine organisms that we farm or fish in Maine, such as oysters or lobsters? How do we choose what species we should farm in tandem with one another? You have to think about um, if you're if you're pairing species and you're looking for that phytoremediation benefit of um, a photosynthesizer, you need to pair species that grow in the same habitat. So, mm -hmm. for example, um, 
kelp and mussels are a good pairing because they are both, you know, you're both, aquaculturists who are, are looking for a site to grow both of those will be looking for somewhat similar characteristics. Um, approximately, you know, 30 plus feet of, at least 30 feet of, um, of water, probably more if you're, if you're growing mussels. Uh, but the deeper you go with a kelp farm, you know, the more, the more line you need, the, the potentially more rough it could be. So um, I guess what I'm getting at is that pairing works well for those two species. It would be a little bit more challenging, I think, to grow kelp around oysters. Oysters typically are found in a little bit shallower water than you would ideally grow kelp in. And so that pairing might not be as applicable. Um, so you could do scallops then or something, Yeah, right? yep, potentially you could do scallops, yep. Um, Nicole was looking at other other pairings of marine vegetation and shellfish, and she was looking at the ability of uh, seagrasses. I was just about to ask yeah, that. Yeah, to improve water chemistry in an enclosed bay that would be a, a place where softshell clams are found. So there's lots of room for eelgrass restoration here in Maine. We also have a huge problem with the invasive green crabs that are decimating the eelgrass. Yeah, that's and what it is in Washington. It is. Huh. Yeah, yeah, so they, they eat the the rhizomes of the eelgrass and they also eat the softshell clams. And so, you know, thinking creatively about how we deal with that um, in combination with uh, making it so that eelgrass restoration can be successful is really important. So there's, there's that potential pairing. Um, She's also looking into the ability of rockweed to be grown in close proximity to oyster farms. You know, that both cool. rocky and everywhere. Yeah, there's rockweed everywhere. Yep, yep. So there are other potential pairings that could work with like marine vegetation and shellfish. But to get back to your question about lobsters, um, I, I can't envision um, something that would work similarly. I think lobsters are kind of vulnerable, extra vulnerable to acidification because of the habitat where they're found. Um, mm -hmm. And the Gulf of Maine is shifting to a lot of um, invasive seaweeds that are kind of decaying on the seafloor, causing anoxic, more acidic environments where at least adult or juvenile and adult lobsters are found. And then you've got different issues for larval lobsters that are kind of being carried along the, along the surface where you have surface acidification happening. So there's a lot more room for, for studying how acidification and other climate factors are impacting lobsters and what potential solutions could be. Listening to Susie, I find myself drawing parallels to my own experiences back in Washington. As Susie talks about the potentials like eelgrass and rockweed and the various localized site characteristics that play a crucial role, it reminds me of the vulnerable eelgrass habitats I've encountered before in the Tacoma Narrows. The vulnerability of those habitats seem to mirror the challenges Susie is depicting. Could learnings from one coastline engage conservation strategies of another? The scope of this project seemed to me to be so intertwined with the distinct characteristics of the local marine environment. It seems though there's potential for an expansion of this concept beyond Maine, possibly crafting a global narrative on marine conservation and farming. Yeah, so, so one way to kind of get at your question about like how do you design your farm um, for the best phytoremediation benefit for these mussels? And one way that we're, we're investigating this is by partnering with farms in Norway and Alaska, where they're deploying the same instruments that we have here in Maine at their locations to see if they can measure an impact 
from the kelp that they're growing in their localized um, in their location to see if we can get a better sense of what um, environmental characteristics are needed for this design to work essentially it, we know it's not going to work everywhere but you know when you have uh, you know a three knot current uh, on a regular basis is that you know something that is not going to be an option or getting at some of those more um, localized site characteristics to determine if a, if a farmer could actually use the strategy or not. So that's just getting like a wider data set outside of what you can get in Maine because they have very different coastlines. And yeah, they have different coastlines and just, you know, sharing, sharing our successes with, um, with, with others and trying to get this, test this concept in other places in the hopes that it will, it will work and then it will take hold and it will be a, a localized adaptation strategy for shellfish farmers. Thinking about shared knowledge and implications in Maine, I might think the evolution from concept to practice could be a challenge to navigate for those in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I think there are not a lot of commercial mussel farmers in Maine. There's what, about five, mm-hmm. five major companies and, and I think the big bottleneck for mussel farming, farming is upfront costs of, of mussel rafts and just equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's one of the the big bottlenecks. Is it's really hard to start a mussel farm in Maine, and so this strategy is most applicable to a mussel farm. We've got hundreds of oyster farmers. The strategy is less less applicable to that to that species. Um, so I think that you know how are mussel farmers far- finding out about it is word of mouth. There's there's not that many businesses, so I think they're they're in pretty close communication. Okay. Um, so I think one thing you know that would be helpful is to help mussel farmers get past the barriers to to starting or expanding their farms. These barriers and challenges highlighted by Susie brought me back to thinking of ocean acidification. Could there be a discernible economic impact bearing down on these mussel farmers that is tied to the ocean's changing chemistry? I always think back to watching a mussel harvest. If you've had the opportunity to see how mussels are harvested in Maine, it's a fairly rough Mm -hmm. process. There's a lot of shoveling, there's a lot of tossing, there's a lot of metal equipment, and there's a lot of opportunity for shells to break. And the way I think about it is if those shells can be just that much stronger because of this strategy, that will lead to less breakage and more money going straight to the farmer instead of you know a dead mussel being tossed off off the um, off the barge. So no one has quantified how um, how how that equates to a mussel farmer's bottom line, to my knowledge. But mm-hmm. um, that that kind of image is always in the back of my mind about well, if we could have a third less breakage because the shells are a little bit thicker, then that would be a huge win for a mussel farmer. Mm-hmm. That would be super interesting to, to somehow get the numbers behind that. I don't yeah. know if it's looking at landings like from Bangs Island before they had kelp and then... Yeah, I think there's so the many different or... there's so many different environmental yeah. Parameters that go into a successful season that I think it would be really hard to quantify, but totally, it would be really interesting like to think about. The pandemic happened, and right? Just 
While talk of ocean acidification and everything else can sometimes seem grim, I did want to end on a high note, looking more towards a horizon brimming with opportunities and hope. I think just maybe one thing I'll, I'll end on that is exciting and hopeful is that beyond um, kelp's ability to remediate ocean acidification at a really, really local scale, there are, there's a lot of research happening in Maine around the broader climate services that seaweeds can provide. So um, I think that that's really exciting and it's exciting that that work is happening in Maine. You've got Bigelow also looking at uh, seaweeds being, specifically sugar kelp, being used as a food additive for cows to reduce methane emissions. Um, there are companies in the United States looking at kelps being used for bioplastics, biofuels. So I think it's really encouraging that folks from Maine, from the United States and around the world are investigating all the potential climate services that, that seaweeds could provide, either um, through replacement of other more high carbon products or um, through things like remediation of, of ocean acidification. So a lot of excitement around seaweed and a lot of, um, a lot of research to be done. Um, but a great opportunity for Maine to, to continue to expand seaweed farming. And just a big thanks to Susie for taking time to lend her expertise to this vital conversation of ocean acidification mitigation, where kelp and mussels may hold an innovative localized solution here in Maine and hopefully beyond.